Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, well, you know what we're talking about. Trump was indicted again, this time with 37 federal counts from the special counsel himself. It's all happening as we speak, so we will talk about the best way to talk about this. Also, hells yeah! <laughs> and joining to give us some hope and inspiration for the fights ahead is Latifa Simon, a Bay Area social justice activist, philanthropic leader, and candidate to fill the congressional seat of the incomparable Barbara Lee. I'm Steve Pearson. I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And I'm Jessica Craven. And, and this, this is How, how We Win. win. All right. So, uh, big, big news week. You know, I was uh, talking to somebody uh, at a meeting I had earlier today who was kind of nonplussed about the news and commenting on how crazy it is that this, you know, former president gets charged with 37 federal counts, is indicted, 37 federal counts. And for a lot of folks, it's like Tuesday. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, we've just gone so far down the rabbit hole of of just insanity with this guy. And he's now been indicted far more uh, times than he's actually won elections, you know. Um, Good one. Yeah, thanks. I've been saving that one up. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. So, what, how, how are you all feeling on, on this, this day? Uh, it's a historic day. Day, even though it feels like at this point we've been here before. <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> I'll go first. I'm I'm exhausted more than anything. I'm just so tired. I mean, I think that it's also it is yeah, it is such a historical moment, and it does feel like it is just another domino falling in what has been such a long series of historical moments and norm-breaking moments, and um, there's no precedent for what we're going through. And I think for me, the exhaustion comes mostly from the threats of violence, which mm. feel like it pushes it into a new level of sinister we haven't dealt with before. So where where you would like to see the entire country rallying behind how horrible these charges are and the sort of overwhelming proof at what he has done to see so many Republicans still stepping up and putting their reputations on the line to say, like, no, it's not him. Yeah. It's you is mm -hmm. it's I mean, it's hard not to be dispirited by it. So and mm -hmm. I certainly don't feel celebratory. I feel mm -hmm. like I'm glad justice is being done, but it's exhausting to watch so many people continue to live in an alternate reality. Mm hmm. I feel I feel similarly, but also the fact that it's, you know, him being indicted and even convicted isn't going to stop him from running for president, isn't going to even stop him, prevent him from winning potentially the nomination of a major party in our country. So it's just it's not an isolated incident is how I keep feeling. It's it's so connected to this larger conspiracy, this larger pattern of spreading lies, breaking laws, fomenting corruption, and it's all about holding on to power. And he's I mean, we're, we'll see how the fallout shakes out. I know there's been some promising public opinion research recently showing actually voters do care about this indictment a bit more than they did the previous grand jury indictment around the Stormy Daniels case. So people think it's more serious and may, you know, it may hurt him politically. But it, like it's kind of what you said, Jess, but you know, if we still have a movement that's just fully embracing this and fully embracing him and this unlawfulness, that's that's what's just exhausting and a bit painful. It's not it's hard to relish in justice when you know that whatever happens, he could still run and win. Yeah. And it's important also to remember, it's not just about power for him. It's always about the grift. He is always looking for ways to enrich himself. And that's what this has always been about. And, um, you know, he is raising millions off of being indicted now. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it really makes me sad for all the folks, because I know the folks who donate to him 
are not folks that can really afford to, to, to donate. You know, they're, they're folks who are struggling and, and they've bought into this blame game, you know, of, of, you know, of grievance, of why their lives are so, uh, so difficult, you know, and, um, and they've been exploited and, uh, you know, indoctrinated, obviously. And they're giving their money to this guy who is just a, you know, at, at his core, a carnival barker, just a, a grifter. Um, and he, he will do it from a jail cell and, and make millions, you know. Uh, so it's, um, it's important to always remember that. And uh, there's constructive ways to talk about this. I don't know what they are. So, <laughs> uh, Jennifer, I know that you've, uh, you've been looking at a lot of the polling, obviously, as you, you just alluded to. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what are the, the things that we really need to do as volunteers and activists as we talk about this? Uh, you know, how, how do we do it in a way that's effective, that, that holds him accountable, that takes in the gravity of the moment and also helps with the you know the public opinion which is everything mm-hmm. yeah well one of the points is what i said this isn't just about trump and and you can say you know we welcome this long overdue step to hold trump accountable but this also goes beyond one individual person and an actor there's MAGA Republicans that supported and schemed with him and covered up for him that are still in power today. And so our job is to bring those people into account and address this lar- this larger pattern. It really is, I mean, that's where we can use the F word, right? Like we've talked about the fascist faction and, and it actually is motivating to the people that we need to uh, get out and vote in the election to make that contrast known. Um, we're also hearing a lot right now that people are feeling um, pretty disparaged by feeling like Democrats aren't fighting, fighting back. So that's kind of part of this, right? Like showing that we're not afraid to fight back and call these people out for, for who they really are. That's that's helpful in, in our messaging as one piece. Um, and then I think the other piece uh, that, that we've seen is just not letting it stand with just talking about the indictment, but to the extent we can connect it to this more overarching narrative, which is part of what the election will be about, which is around protecting our freedoms and all of the things that we hold dear, no matter who we are, what, who, where we come from, et cetera, um, that it's, it's, it's kind of about this fundamental idea of people who are obstructing justice, lying in order to cling to power, these MAGA Republicans. But it's, it's about us coming together uh, across all those differences to, to like stand up and protect the freedoms that we, that we want to continue to have in this country. Yeah, I think that freedom frame seems to be it's critical for us. And and I think that I mean, you know, obviously far better than I do, but it seems that the messaging on freedom resonates very, very strongly with people. And so as long as we keep hammering it and then it, I think the other thing I heard and you can confirm if this is true, Jennifer, is just that we are as far as the sort of the people crying out about witch hunts and the, the why did Biden and Hillary and, and Mike Pence get a different, you know, treatment to keep coming back to because they didn't try to obstruct because they did not try to obstruct because they willingly yeah. gave materials back when the second it came to their attention that they had them right. and that that is the thing that is different. It's really very simple. And it is yep. the willful nature of Trump's retention that is the problem. Not the retention if it was accidental, but the willful nature. And that yep. that is a simple talking point that apparently we're supposed to be repeating often. So for whatever that's worth. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's an easy answer. And that that is actually helpful um, in moving public opinion on this case. Like actually pointing out that it was about how he covered up. I mean, people may take documents like in not knowing, but he had multiple opportunities to actually address that. And he willfully did the opposite and kind of, I mean, kind of acted like it was his own little trophy that he was putting in his office. And it was a complete national security threat. So he's the only one who has acted in that way. And so pointing that out does help solidify people's opinions that he they believe that he committed a crime and that he should be held accountable which is a like essentially two-thirds of the country now believes that he had committed a crime which was up really i think they said 12 points from 
plus 25 to plus 37 since March. So between the Jean Carroll, E. Jean Carroll case and this case, um, it's it's starting to add up. And then hopefully there'll be at least one, Still one more. Still waiting on Georgia. I'm, ho- I'm holding yeah. out for Georgia. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> excited about that one. That's a big one, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then we've got the, you know, the the election interference one as well. I mean, yeah. there's, you know. The January 6th. Yeah. Yeah. The no, January it's huge. 6th one. Yeah. It's huge. So they're starting to get more and more um, serious with, you know, each, you know, it starts with the Eugene Carroll, or sorry, starts with the Stormy Dan- Daniels, goes to um, this around the documents and then interference in Georgia and complete, uh, you know, attack on, like a violent attack on the Capitol. So it is kind of interesting that how that's progressing, and it does feel like it's it is solidifying. It is probably consolidating and solidifying his base, but it is hurting him with the independents and the people in the middle who he's going to to need in order to win any of the states that he needs to win. I think it's interesting. Also, Melinda, my wife, pointed this out to me uh, earlier. We haven't heard from the kids at all. They have been very very quiet through all of this. So. Mm-hmm. It, it might be hurting, hurting with his own children as well. But well, mm-hmm. and a, another interesting thing is that I mean, it's not interesting. Thank goodness, really. But like, there was this all this talk of violence. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. today, it really seems that the there was obviously there were some Trump supporters who showed up. But the truth of the matter is, is that most of the organizers of January sixth are in jail. And serving long sentences. And a lot of the people who participated are also serving long sentences and facing really strong consequences. And so there is a certain level of of hopefully deterrence of like, no, there will be consequences if you do that. So it was somewhat reassuring to me and part of a larger theme of sort of like the justice system. It's not perfect. It's really messed up. It's not as fast as we want. But it it is working more or less to sort of keep (laughs) – things in yeah. place kind of i mean i was yeah. I, i'm hopeful about the fact that there wasn't another january 6th today i you know when you were mm-hmm. talking about that i wonder because you know the truth is it's a very scary small minority of folks who make a lot of noise and create all of this pressure on these uh republicans to fall in line and do all this stuff and they're terrified of them but it is a small group and to your point a lot of those key organizers who have been around for a long time leading uh, these, uh, you know, these actions are in jail right now. So not only is it a deterrent for other people, but actually the organizers themselves are in jail. So, um, you know, that's hopeful. That's very hopeful. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, all right. Well, let's move on from Trump, shall we? <laughs> um, we try <laughs> yes, to avoid please. getting too mired into Trump on on this show, but today today's definitely the day for it. But um, uh, let's talk about this uh, Republican tax cut bill. I guess I just want to say, and you know, feel free to jump in. I just, you know, we just spent months worrying about the debt ceiling and worrying about. The fact that they were going to tank the economy because, and I paraphrase and heavy quotes here, but, you know, the debt is too large, right? This is their sort of, this is their their theme song. And now what, a week later, week and a half <laughs> later, they've come out with a bill that will basically, um, over 10 years, uh, cost uh, add a trillion dollars to the deficit or cost us a trillion dollars. And, and the only way that they're saying they'll pay for part of it is by cutting green energy tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act after a week where we just saw like the East Coast locked in their homes because of toxic air pollution. And it's just, you know, it's staggering to me, really. Um, I don't I don't even know it's what staggering. to say about it, except that it's just staggering. Yeah, it's just so blatant and disgusting. It's just like, that's literally all they care about. All they care about is giving taxpayer money back to their rich friends and big corporations. That's the only thing that they want to do. So it is staggering and it is um, predictable. And it's just it's just so disgusting and blatant when you see it like literally a week after you just made a huge deal about how we have so much debt and deficit and blah, blah, blah. And that's why we needed to grind the economy to a halt. It's, and, and that would have also hurt regular people, not the people that they're trying yes. to protect. It's just, 
it's I'm like l- l- lacking words as well, <laughs> but it, but I guess I would say uh, I mean I don't know I'm sort of shocked to know that Democrats might be in support of something. I saw that they um, want a child the child tax credit expansion as part of it, but I would not want there to be a tax cut bill under Biden. I think that would be a huge mistake, and I I don't know if there's some other way to deal with the child tax credit, which is important, but. I mean, I can't imagine giving them any sort of victory on that. Can you? No. I mean, especially this gives the richest 1% $28.4 billion in tax breaks. And, and you Mm-mm. said, you know, uh, something along the lines of why are they doing this or who are they doing this for? It's really who they work for. It's pretty clear, you know, who they work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you can see it in every policy. And, um, yeah, I, I would be... I would be surprised. I'll, I'll go out on a limb saying I would be surprised if you see Democrats, you know, really supporting this other than, you know, one or two that may or may not be named Manchin. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But sure. something definitely to put folks, uh, to put pressure on folks. Like, you know, and thank you, Jess, for bringing this to our attention because uh, we should definitely be calling our representatives and letting them know that we are not in the business of giving more tax cuts to billionaires and uh, and certainly not in the business of taking away these crucial um, environmental provisions. God, what was going on in New York and on the East Coast was, uh, you know, apocalyptic. It, it, it's just, yeah. and we see this every single year, you know, more brutal fires and, you know, we see them a lot here on the West Coast and, you um, you know, uh, we don't have that as much on the East Coast as we saw in New York just getting completely socked in. It was so scary. And, um, yeah. you know, we, we need to be doing everything we can to protect against that and to protect people, not making sure that billionaires can have multiple yachts. Yeah. And just politically, it's not smart. I mean, this this bill that they've introduced lays bare what their actual agenda is. It's a perfect way to contrast with what Democrats actually want to do and are trying to do to help people. It, it's in black and white. It's very clear. Like, this is what's motivating them. All this stuff about trans this and culture that and whatever, that's not what it's about. It's about this. This is their only agenda. And so politically to, like, let them do that, let them do whatever they're going to want, veto that, do not be a part of that, that becomes an election issue. There's a problem right now with Democratic voters who are upset, like I said, that they don't feel like people are standing, Democrats are standing up and fighting for them. And voters are saying things like, it feels like the Republicans are in charge right now. And like letting this bill go forward because they want to get part of the child tax credit is like such a step in that wrong direction of making people feel like the Republicans are in charge. Because, you know, there was a time when Trump had the White House, Republicans had the Senate, and Democrats had the House. Did anyone feel like Democrats were in charge at that point in time? No, definitely not. (laughs) No, because they set the agenda. So we cannot let them set the agenda. They are in the minority. They have control of one branch of power, one, and the Supreme Court, of course. But yeah, I mean, right. in the in the legislative executive, they only have one branch. Why are they setting the agenda? Why are they doing that? that and makes and no they're sense. so unpopular. They're unpopular. The policy is unpopular. The, tax exactly. breaks for billionaires is like the most unpopular thing <laughs> you most, can do. It's the and most unpopular. Child tax credits are very important, but to trade them, it's like these it's devil's deals it. they keep making. It's just like you, you trade... Great climate provisions for a dirty pipeline. Well, they kind of cancel each other out then. It's like, don't cancel out your good policies. Like, that's not good. Exactly. I say, let's let them do this. Veto it with reckless abandon. (laughs) Veto it. (laughs) And then actually rebuild the trifecta in 2024 and then pass an actual policy to advance the right kind of spending. This is just ridiculous. I really hope that we can push our representatives to not go that direction. I like your Me plan, too. Jennifer, uh, especially the rebuild the trifecta part. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and we know we can, it just takes all of us, you know, getting out there and, and pitching in and we can make it happen. Um, so we talked about, uh, some, you know, wildly unpopular Republican policies and they know their policies are unpopular. So what they try to do is, uh, distract and create culture wars, uh, 
preying on, you know, conservative fears and lies. And, you know, Jess, we were talking about this a little bit last week in terms of pride and um, what happened at Satakoy Elementary School here in North Hollywood around a, a book that just clearly said some kids have two moms and two dads, right? And a pride flag was burned and there was uh, protests and, and actions. So uh, last Tuesday, there was a school board meeting in Glendale, the city of Glendale. And uh, I know this is a national show, but a lot of you probably saw it because it did make national news very sadly. Uh, because it was a vote to make June Pride Month. And uh, there were a lot of, I don't want to call them protesters. They were really more agitators from outside of the district, you know, who came in and it got violent and uh, it was terrible. And the only silver lining of it that we talked about before we started recording this, Jess, was it shines a light on this you know, plan to infiltrate school districts, to uh, gen up these hateful culture war issues uh, that are, you know, to divide and then take power in these school districts. Um, that's what Republicans have done over decades has been, is, you know, focus on local power and building from there. And they've done a very good job of it, but we're on to them now. And, uh, and there's some things that we can do to push back on that, right? Yes, run for school board. I mean, honestly, it is uh, it is critical at this point that people are either running for school board or at the very least know who your school board representative is. And if they are not good, get involved in replacing them. Um, because having progressives on school boards at this point is existentially important, especially for LGBTQ young people. And the Glendale School Board voted unanimously, right, to support right. the Pride resolution um, because people have worked really hard uh, to make sure that there were progressives on that school board. And in 2022, the the two progressives who uh, won their seats won by like 50 votes each. It's a vanishingly small number of votes. The great thing about school board elections is so few people pay attention to them yeah. that if you organize, you can win. But that's also the scary thing because that's what a lot of bad actors are doing. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, because they know there's an opportunity to get in there. And, um, you know, we have to push back on that. So you have a great resource for people, Jess. You want to talk about it? Well, yeah. I just, I know that uh, there's an organization I've mentioned before called Showing Up for Racial Justice. Uh, sh it, short for that is uh, Surge. Mm -hmm. And they have a, sort of a, a strategy for 2023. And part of it is really. Um, Organizing around school boards the same way the right has done, but really organizing in a in a multiracial, um, cross coalitional way to get progressive you know people, um, young people, people of color, LGBTQ people on school boards, and so they are having a big uh, meeting webinar to talk about how they're going to do that and how you can get involved. It's on Tuesday, June twentieth at eight p.m. Eastern time, and we will put the link to sign up in the show notes, or you can just go to uh, showingupforracialjustice.org. But uh, we, we all got to get involved. You know, if we're sitting on the sidelines, unfortunately, we're helping the opposition at this point. So, yep. And uh, I mean, I guess that's a good segue because that's one good action item uh, into our chop wood, carry water um, segment, you know, because that's definitely something that you need to do. Um, the other thing that I would uh, highlight uh, for this week is Monday the 19th is Juneteenth. And, uh, and this is something that, uh, as you all know, has recently been rec recognized federally by Biden. And um, it's a great opportunity to get out there and, uh, and celebrate Juneteenth and get more people aware of it every single year. So um, that's Monday the 19th. And um, let's talk about our reasons for hope. Um, and uh, Jen, why don't we, we start with you? Sure. Well, piggybacking on the earlier discussion, you know, there have been a few other things popping up with the attacks um, by the right wing conservative movement on, you know, things about pride, um, things about transgender um, visibility and um, and all of that in the LGBT community. One of the things that you might have seen was um, where it happened with the Dodgers, where they um, mm -hmm. then like had to remove, you know, ended up disinviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to receive this award. 
but anyway, it, it got me thinking how. But then, <clears> they, then they came back just to be clear for around, people that yeah. know. Uh, after a lot of pressure and work by local officials, they yeah. they mea culpa and had them back. Yeah, and gave them an award and everything. I guess it just all of it from everything we've seen and all the backlash. It's like it's a the backlash is only there because of the progress that has been made, and it's just really kind of hopeful. Like it's kind of hopeful to me to just see how actually integrated positive, more positive pride and LGBTQ messages. Like in my own lifetime, that wasn't true. You know, when like living in San Francisco ten years ago it was like San Francisco had a big party, but there really wasn't that much visibility in in the culture. And that has just really changed. So I just think it's always, you know, we're seeing a reaction to it right now, which I think is our job to continue to fight back. And like, like what happened with the Dodgers, I think we need to continue to have a better message in how we fight back and talk about this stuff because the backlash is going to keep happening because of the success of the movement. And it shouldn't shy us away from, you know, continuing to push for that kind of success in terms of the visibility and just the acceptance in the culture. Love that. Yep, I agree. All right, Jess, what's your reason for hope? Oh my gosh. Wait a minute. I'm looking at the notes. Can this be right? It's yeah, I know. S- it's SCOTUS that's giving it's you a, hope? I know. I know. It, it's so weird. We're living in the upside down because last week mm-hmm. uh, the Supreme Court had an astonishingly good and extremely unexpected ruling uh, in a case. Um, yeah. Allen v. Milligan, um, and the 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 short you know uh, sort of description of the situation is that there was uh, they upheld a section of the Voting Rights Act that everybody expected them to strike down, and mm-hmm. the Voting Rights yeah. Act has already been weakened significantly by the Supreme Court by Roberts specifically. Yep. Um, and in in a decision that really is just I don't think that a single person who watches the court would have predicted it. Uh, by a five to four decision, they upheld it. And not only is it a major victory in uh, the state where, you know, in Alabama, which is where the the, the lawsuit was taking place and um, where black voters will be given an additional majority black district, as they should be. But it will also uh, this decision will immediately be referred to in about 30 other redistricting cases. Um so yeah. we could pick up five or six congressional seats as a result. But yep. even more important than that is just the fact that I, I tell people a lot that public outcry matters when it comes to the Supreme Court. And there are many, including my my own husband, who's like, oh, that can't be the case. But <laughs> but it is because at a certain point when they feel that they are losing all credibility, especially John Roberts, we have real reason to believe that that affected his decision in this case. Yeah. That maybe they didn't have the stomach to do one more decision that would absolutely tear down what shred of a reputation they have left. Also, just oh, feels agree. really good to be able to go on a podcast and tell the world that your spouse was wrong. I get that. Love it. Yep. And he'll really <laughs> appreciate that. He'll, he'll be super psyched about that. No. <laughs> no, he won't mind. But yeah. It's yeah. a big deal. It's, great. it's a great thing it's to great be news. wrong about. Yeah, exactly. Um, that gives me a lot of hope. And hats off to Mark Elias and his incredible team for all of their uh, work on this, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I will say real quickly, I'll try to be quick about it. My reason for hope is another weird one. It's about strikes and, um, and union movements right now. Because we've talked a lot over recent years mm-hmm. about uh, this moment that we're having in labor and the struggle that we're having with Starbucks employees, you know, unionizing and then having those stores shut down and Amazon workers unionizing and uh, having those factories closed down. So here in Los Angeles, we're in the middle of the writer's strike. Uh, SAG-AFTRA, my union, has uh, authorized overwhelmingly a strike. We are negotiating for fair pay. And the Teamsters are about to authorize a strike against UPS, which would have huge ramifications and is an enormous bargaining uh, chip. Just so you know, UPS, through the pandemic, made record profits once again. They've increased their profit margin by $5 billion. That's a billion dollars for each year of the existing Teamsters contract. And, uh, and so they are fighting for fair pay, for an increase in wages. They ought to be able to benefit from the enormous profits. And also, 
air conditioning in the trucks that they're driving, right? You know, like fundamental yes. things. And and UPS didn't commit to air conditioning. They said, well, we can put fans in there for you. You know, I mean, this is just ridiculous. So we're about to uh, be faced with the prospect of one of the nation's largest strike movements, which will really uh, have an impact. And why this gives me hope is because I think we will win this because we are really coming together as workers in a way that I haven't seen in a long, long time, if ever, really, in my lifetime. And when we talk about the the context of the news that we were talking about earlier with these corporate tax cuts for you know for billionaires, uh, on the other side of that, you have unions coming together and working for people and and lifting up workers. And um, I think that it's a fight that we have the edge on because public sentiment is with us. So uh, it gives me a lot of hope. And uh, I hope everyone uh, stands in solidarity with with all of us who are striking right now. It's the last thing you want to do. It's, it's you know, uh, terrible to be out of work. And it's difficult. But uh, the, the fight is righteous. And I believe that we will have a better tomorrow because of it. Beautiful. May it be so. Let's make it so. Okay, so you had a uh, speaking... I don't know. There's no no good segue there. You had uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, um, uh, a great interview with Latifah Simon. I haven't heard it yet. I'm very excited. Yeah, let's get into it. So we're so excited today to have Latifah Simon joining us for our interview. Latifah is a nationally recognized advocate for civil rights and racial justice in Oakland and the Bay Area. She has been a leader in progressive philanthropy as well as an elected member of the Bay Area Rapid Transit Board. She received the MacArthur Foundation Genius Award in 2003, the youngest woman to receive the award in recognition of her work as executive director of the Young Women's Freedom Center. She is currently a candidate for Congress in the 12th District, running for the seat uh, being vacated by Barbara Lee in her run for U.S. Senate. So once again, Latifa, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Super excited to be in conversation with you. And of course, Latifa and I go way back and know each other very well. But um, I wanted to give you a chance, Latifa, to share just a little bit about your own story and what brings you to this work uh, for folks who are just getting to know you. It is such a privilege as I look back on my 30 years, about 28 years, but I'm around it off for 30, <laughs> 28 years full time working in a movement um, to change and support the increase of material conditions for folks in, in the communities that I love um, mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. I started off working as a community organizer at the Young Women's Freedom Center and quickly became its executive director as a teenager. I was 19. Mm -hmm. That baby on my hip and an amazing membership body of young women who had been in systems, both in the foster care and juvenile justice system. Together, we built an amazing model of not only successful reentry, but we built a movement of young people who have fought and won housing and good wages and good jobs. We created what I call the Highlander of the West here mm -hmm. in the Bay Area that you know, now it's 30 years old. I went on um, because of how successful we were at bringing in young people, diverting them out of systems and keeping them out of systems. Uh, Kamala Harris hired me to run her reentry programs when she was the district attorney mm -hmm. in San Francisco. And I did that for five years. And our programs are were nationally renowned and awarded. And to this day, you know, now Vice President Harris talks about the work that we did um, because we did reduce recidivism significantly among young people who were out on the streets and in the street economies. You know, I have been working in organizing campaigns, issue-based campaigns and leading organizations, including the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights mm -hmm. um, and running for elected office locally. And I got to tell you, you know, being a part of a like local government, um, it's not it's it's not glamorous work, especially mm -hmm transportation system with the Bay Area Rapid Transit Board that I was elected to serve on, I've learned hard and heavy the beauty um, and and the obligation of serving our people. And when Barbara Lee decided to run for the United States Senate, um, you know, I, I had to quickly perk up and make some decisions as a single mom. I've been a single mom twice. <laughs> um, I'm a widow, disabled, 
and I'm an organizer and an organizational leader. And so this idea that Barbara was going to ascend into her own campaign and there was an open seat, um, I didn't want at all to let anyone, any, any, any random progressive <laughs> to, to take her seat. Rondell mm-hmm. and Barbara Lee have an amazing, amazing lineage um, that, that they have lifted up in this seat over the past literally almost 50 plus years. So I'm ready to run for the people in this community and the people who have poured so much into me um, mm-hmm. to lead. Um, that's who I am. And that's a lot of reason why I'm running. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. It makes so much sense that with that particular seat being open and the the poll that you would have, I am curious because you are a warrior for justice and you have spent so much of your time on the outside, really. I mean, of course, you're on the BART board, but a lot of your activism is kind of like has been on the outside. So how are you thinking about what are the levers that you see you can pull on the inside in Congress, you know, knowing that what, how can we get the most justice for people um, with this new role that you're hoping to take on inside of Congress? Right. You know, in addition to the activism and organizing and leading organizations, uh, one of the, the coolest jobs that I have right now is I'm a trustee uh, with the largest university system in the United States, CSU. Of course. I'm the, I'm the head of uh, the audit committee, which, you know, always, wow, Latifa, like you're into finance and oversight. Absolutely. Um, you know, so as someone who really understands how money moves um, mm-hmm. and what public sector economics is, um, that's one, one, mm-hmm. you know, having led organizations, big and small government and CBOs. Right. Importantly, you know, Jennifer, Congress, you're, when you are elected to the Congress, you are one of 435. Mm-hmm. And the work is not just to be a voice mm-hmm. for the people who have been forgotten and maligned in this country. And yes, that is a very large part of the job. Equally, it is important to develop a clarity that you got to organize. You got to knock on a lot of doors, even in the building. You got to whip votes. You have to, in my case, continue the progressive vision of the person that came, the warrior that came before me, and to bring in more voices into the legislation that I will sign, introduce, and write. Mm-hmm. This job is a long-term job. You don't get anything done in the first year or the second year. But what I'm excited to do in my first year as a freshman, one, of course, is to continue the work. Um, but we're going to have a debt ceiling to vote on in the 119th Congress. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're also going to have big work to do in terms of advancing reproductive health. We, even in the city, uh, of Oakland, even in the cities of LA and Sacramento, and the bastion of progressivism, there are there's still much needed voice to come from California around reproductive health and economic justice and housing justice. The last thing I'll say about this, I am no fool in thinking that I'm going to get on the appropriations committee as a freshman. Um, but one, uh, everyone on that committee will know me and know my name and know what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but the reality is, um, it takes a long time to get the kind of committee assignments that you that that one would want in Congress, but every single one that I get, I am going to organize and work and ensure um, that as folks have sent me to DC, I'm carrying everyone with me. Our hopes, our dreams, our discontentment with government, both parties. Um, it's about relationships. It's about finishing the work. It's about really getting to know deeply what's in front of us, putting my head down and up simultaneously and moving our agenda, our collective agenda. Yeah. What's one of my favorite memories of Barbara Lee, actually, when I got a chance to meet with her in D.C. with a group of women and talking about these issues that we care about. And she just pulled out her list and she's like, here's the count. And she's like checking off the people and mm-hmm. working through it. You know, that's absolutely how she approached her job. And so it's it's awesome to hear you say that. And and I completely agree. It's, it's a very much an organizing job. So the second piece I was going to ask you, actually, you touched on, which is, you know, people's faith in government. And so I'm curious how as you're out there talking to people right now in your campaign, and it is such a tough moment. People are, you know, a little bit, there's a malaise, you know, people are tired and exhausted and there's a lot going on. How do you think about encouraging people as you're, as you're going into the federal government, hopefully, how do you, how are you thinking about encouraging people to, you know, have, regain more faith in actually government as a, as a tool and a force for good? One person elected can't do that. I think <laughs> showing and proving. Um, what yeah. excites me so much about having this job is 
not just the opportunity to speak and to act and to work for folks on the floor, but equally in the district to have the most badass team on the ground doing constituency services. So mm-hmm. much about being a servant, not a God, a servant to the people is ensuring that they, whether it's the woman who, elder who just lost her house or the veteran who deserves medical care and he needs linkages with the VA or, you know, the young person who is paying 40% of their income somehow and student loans, I can go on and on. Um, part of being a congresswoman is bringing resources back to the district and also mm-hmm. uh, ensuring that folks right here at home have access to all the opportunity, all the education, being able to work very closely with local electeds to be a part of their bully pulpit to organize on these issues. I mean, I think faith in government is what, why, you know, Miss Lee, who's also my professor at Mills College, (laughs) she gets on a plane at Thursday night and is in district all weekend. She's been doing that for almost, you know, over two decades. Mm-hmm. It is about showing up. Mm-hmm. But I just think that this idea, this this beautiful new class of mm-hmm. folks who are running for office, younger folks, disabled folks, queer folks, poor folks, renters, being able to sort of infiltrate the sort of the upper middle class white bastion of both parties, uh, we can collectively restore faith by not only showing up, but really showing people that, you know, we can be outside chanting and begging people uh, who don't have our interests in mind to make the right decisions, but we can also run and be on the other side of the dais with a gavel to make those decisions. I think that re- re- restoring hope is also about representing. Mm-hmm. That's us. We mm-hmm. actually can make our own decisions. Getting there is hard. You know, <laughs> campaigning is really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> But that's that's why I want to do this. I love that so much. It's exact. That's exactly right. And it's been amazing to see, right, in the way that Congress has been able to shift when seats have opened up and new people are coming in. You know, like our friends Greg Kassar and Delia Ramirez and Max Frost. And so I, I wonder if you're kind of like looking at that too and excited to to join in that part of that cadre that's like reshaping what it means to be this kind of representative. You know. Yeah, every part of these United States are different. And also there's so much that we share. I do watch and listen to, I'm kind of a real, you know, not, I'm embarrassed. I, I listen to a lot of congressional hearings that I have for <laughs> years, right? Um, C-SPAN is, is always been a friend of mine. It's the weird thing. I was like, what are you listening to? Is that a forum? Like, no, it's... No, it's not. It's it's this other thing. Yeah. Me, watching and learning from folks, both mm-hmm. folks that I do not want to be like and also folks I want to deeply learn from. I think you can learn from everybody. But yeah, I think it's been very, very beautiful and interesting to see again some of these freshmen come in and and watch how they have positioned themselves, you know, throughout their campaigns to now their first almost year of governing or half of year of governing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think this district wants Um, me to be a warrior on union issues, on work issues, on environmental justice issues, on reproductive health issues, um, and, you know, be a pragmatic radical, (laughs) uphold our ideas and to move, to move government along. It's one thing to be a voice, um, but we have real work to do. So changing and shifting culture of any institution is what I've always loved to do, but also making sure that um, I'm, I'm a part of bringing some functionality to like a body that has to get its stuff together. We got to one take back the Congress, but I want to be a part of a generation of folks that in the next years of, of our lives, we are focusing on making that institution a sane one that lives up to the promise of this country. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And it's it's still such a sort of scary moment, right? And as we head into 2024, the trauma that we've been through seeing people attack the Capitol in um, the aftermath of the 2020 election. And I'm just curious, how are you thinking about the 24 cycle? How are you thinking? Because that will be your election, right? When you when you get there. Um, how are you thinking about it? And, and you know, what should we be all be thinking about as we head into this important cycle? 
Well, I'm excited about 24. You know, for me right now, I am on the phone all day, <laughs> you know, all evening, I should say. I, I'm a renter. I'm a single mom. I still have a regular job in the mornings. And right after work, I'm starting my campaign. I have a wonderful staff and we're really gearing up for the general. We believe we're in a wonderful position to move through the primary and get to get to the general, raising a ton of resources, not only for my campaign. I mean, we want to be really frugal, but we also believe that it is super important. Um, you know, I'm I'm on the coast. I can make calls that some of my brethren and sister and my siblings can't make in the middle of the country. I want to spend a lot of time, you know, within the the 24 cycle around the country with other folks who are running everything from school board, of course, to the House, to the Senate, ensuring that we're campaigning together with a united voice about what it can and should really mean to be blue. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm I'm excited. I'm actually excited about the 24 cycle as well, even though it is a lot to consider. Um, I just feel, I just feel like we know our coalition. You know, we know um, who we are in terms of what we've already done. We've rejected this kind of extremism of Trump in the past, and and we can do it again if we continue to believe and and make it clear what's at stake. It's our, it's all of our freedoms. It's all of our rights that are at stake, and that's something that's worth all of us coming together around. So, despite the challenges, I actually, I feel weirdly hopeful about it as well, just generally the, the presidential election. Um, so, okay, you mentioned all the things you're doing. And one of the things that we always talk about in our on our podcast is giving people a to-do list and, and how can they help. So I'm just love to hear, you know, if there's people out there who are inspired by you, what can people do to help right now? There are a number of things. I mean, you know, my campaign team will be like, Latifa, why are you saying this? The first thing in your local county and your local city, understand that there are people who are running who really need your help. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we have, when we're talking about a national coalition of dreamers, I'm talking about people who dream bigger than what's right in front of them. It's extremely important if they want to step up and have the hubris to try to make some serious, serious fundamental change in our communities. We have to support them. For my run, I'm asking the same thing in quarter two and in quarter three. Um, I am want to build one of the most remarkable grassroots campaigns the country has ever seen. Mm-hmm. So I definitely need resources. <laughs> you can go to latifasimon.com. You know, the L-A-T-E-E-F-A-H-S-I-M-O-N.com and look at what we're doing in our campaign and please think and consider um, supporting me. Uh, there, there is, you know, clarity that and, and good data behind this, that Black women running for federal office, uh, we raise less. I want to and I believe I will um, change uh, that paradigm and hopefully for other women who are running with me and after me um, that we create again not only a bench of women who uh, can can campaign and fundraise and then govern effectively um I, I i need and i want that to happen so right now it's about spreading the word about our campaign and providing us with the war chest um, so that one, we can have an infrastructure that long lasts this one race and that we're really lifting up, you know, the single mothers, other other disabled folks, other women of color, other queer folks, women around the country, uh, people around the country who are wanting to run in democratic seats. Um, I have been a leader locally and I believe that I can take these skills nationally and organizing for not only myself, but other folks and certainly in Congress for the American people. Thank you so much. Yes, it's a super inspiring vision. And I really appreciate how you're thinking about growing a war chest that's for a larger uh, group of folks running as well as yourself. That's really inspiring. Um, So our final question that we always ask everyone who comes on this show is uh, because we like to leave people feeling positive mm-hmm. is <laughs> what gives you hope? So I know you're just, you're such a positive, hopeful person, but tell us what is really giving you a lot of hope right, right now in this moment. <laughs> I am pretty positive <laughs> except for, you know, when my team is like, we got to do 30 calls in an hour. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, I'm an 11th or 12th generation American. We're still trying to figure it out, but we know mm. it's past 10. Mm. Um, and so having a family who has helped build this country, I'm deeply invested in its success. Mm. I'm deeply invested um, in 
this country living by its most profound objectives and goals. And from, again, beautiful opportunities for folks to flee degradation, to be here and make what is what for this country to be able to make amends for its past deep sins to people who look like me. Uh, I'm deeply inspired by folks who not only take to the streets, but also folks who put their names on ballots. I'm so deeply inspired um, by young people like my daughter who just graduated from law school who want to do community lawyering to stand up for people who have a voice but don't have a pathway to speak that voice on a soapbox. I'm so inspired by folks who fundraise every single day to provide food for people in communities because government works too slow. Mm-hmm. Um, listening to real people who have real solutions, um, they make me want to work 24 hours a day. Um, they make, you know, my privilege to be able to be in community work and in philanthropy and now in politics that much more joyful. Um, the promises that were made and in fact broken, uh, I, I believe in a country that can heal and it won't heal itself by itself. The Calvary isn't coming. We're it. We're the leadership. We're going to shift these dynamics. Our children, not only are counting on us, if we watch them in their beauty and their purity, we can learn from them. And um, every day, not only my children, but people in the town that you know I, I live in and I work in, I believe, I believe that things can get and they will get better. Mm, it's beautiful. It's it's what gives me hope as well. I mean, people like you doing this, speaking such beautiful truth, and um, it's really true that we are the ones we've been waiting for. So everybody listening should know that as well. And take whatever steps we all need to take to um, do everything we can to make that vision a reality. So yay, let's go. Let's <laughs> I, go. Thank you all so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win, wait for it, when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Please send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or find us on social at howwewinpod, at bluesboysteve, at Jen Ancona, and at jesscraven101. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show with your friends and family. There's always work to do, so we will be back with some more next Wednesday.